Open the pod bay doors, Cal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Team Aperture Podcast, where we discuss all things movies from first-time directors, indie, art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we talk the sophomore release from Irish-British playwright, screenwriter, and director Martin McDonough in his 2012 film, Seven Psychopaths, starring Colin Farrell, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, and Christopher Walken, with a special appearance by musician-actor Tom Waits. Screenwriter Marty works to finish his newest screenplay, while his best friend Billy and associate Hans work to make money by kidnapping dogs and returning them to their owners for the reward. As Marty falls deeper into alcoholism and struggles to defy Hollywood stereotypes in his latest movie, Billy gets into it deep after kidnapping a local mafia leader's precious dog, Bonnie, and it all comes to a head when Marty, Billy, and Hans drive to the desert to help Marty finish his screenplay, and he finds out his best friend Billy isn't quite who he thought he was. I mean, after all, he just wanted to help his friend finish his movie. The film debuted at the 2012 Toronto International Film Festival, winning the People Choice Award, Midnight Madness, and was later released in North America in October, opening to just over 1,400 screens on an estimated budget of $15 million. I'm Gabe Bienendorf, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined today by my partner in crime, Mr. Alan Martindale, veteran podcaster and editor. Alan, how the hell are you? I, hey, man, anytime I get to see Colin Farrell's eyebrows, I'm a happy man. If I've ever seen anybody act through their eyebrows, it's, it's Colin Farrell. He's so good at it. He's so good. And he's got those big, bushy eyebrows. I have them, too, so I can say that. But he, he like he, he is so expressive in just the movement of his eyebrows. You have them, but can you do what he does no, with them? I wish. If I could, I'd be a millionaire <laughs> right now. I'd be in Hollywood. <laughs> I... Uh... I picked this movie. I wanted to first get a little bit of your relationship to the movie. Like, have you seen it before? And before we dig deeper, like, what were your initial impressions about the film? Uh, I've, I've seen it before, and I really liked it. So I was happy when, when you chose to do this one. Uh, watching it back, I, I've actually watched it three, well, let's say two and a half times now, because uh, we were originally going to do it last week. We had some complications. So just to do a refresher, I kind of rewatched most of it and I loved it more even this third time, this third viewing. Uh, I, I got a lot of the jokes that I didn't get before. I kind of picked up on the nuances of the characters. It's it's just really good. And the meta nature of of this movie is is it gets a little wonky there in the middle, I think. Uh, maybe not wonky. We'll kind of get into it. But it's it, overall, I think this is a fun movie. The cast is the perfect cast. Like if you would have told me, you know, let's get let's get uh, Christopher Walken, let's get Colin Farrell, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson. They don't seem like a type of cast that would mesh together very well, but they're all perfectly cast in their roles, and I, th- I thought they did a great job. I mean that that cast is amazing. Yeah. I mean the fact that he was able to pull all. I mean those are all huge. Those are like, he's swinging. Those are all. Those are all. Those are all all stars. And wait, you know? and before we dive in, I got to ask you. So, are we putting Christopher Walken on the national treasure list? I, I think so. I think we kind of have I think, to. I think he's got to. Uh, go I'm writing on. it down. He's going on officially. Especially, I mean, of course, watching it and seeing him again in this, but then just anytime you, the fact that people can say Christopher Walken and then they can go, they can get into a voice and a demeanor, and he's stylized and identified himself the way he does. 
Like he's got to have, he's got to be on that list. Well, and the thing I love about him in this movie is he has like the Christopher Walken thing going on, but he's so much more than that caricature that people paint of him. Like yeah. he's so much more than the impression people do. He's actually a damn good actor and he can like some of my favorite parts in this movie are the parts when he's with his wife. Like that's, you know, that's fun and it's sweet and it's tender. And then, you know, after the tragedy happens to her and his reaction when he's sitting there with Woody Harrelson, he says so much in a look and you don't like when you just think of Christopher Walken, you think of, you know, the weird kookiness like Pulp Fiction, his role in Pulp Fiction. You think yeah. of that. Uh, but he is so much better than that caricature. No, absolutely. I mean, the other thing is what makes him fun is that he's identified himself in that caricature. So even though he can step outside of that, like you're saying, the fact that he's so, he's so distinguishable by his, the, his mannerisms and the way that he portrays himself, that is uniquely him. I think that's what makes, you know, any actor is trying to identify that way. Like they're trying to break loose of any potential stereotypes. And he's kind of become, I guess, in some ways, his own stereotype, but it's all based on his previous performances. Right. You know, but like you said, I think he's as, as on the spectrum. He can step outside of that and, and hit those other notes that maybe you don't expect when you initially hear Christopher Walken. Right. No, he's great. I love him. Yeah, he, um, he, he is a national treasure. I'm, gl I'm glad you're okay with that. He's, I'm, we're putting him on the list. Yeah, we I gotta, think so. I'm trying to remember the run through of the list. I got I got it right here. So we have Dennis Hopper, Samuel Samuel L. Jackson, Jack Nicholson, uh, Martin Sheen, Bill Murray, and Christopher Walken. That's a pretty good list. It's That's a good a list. Good. Yeah. Uh, I think I'd watch any movie that any of them are in at any time. And I like it because we're not taking this list lightly. Like we're not just throwing yeah. anyone on there. This is this yeah. is this is important stuff here. I think I tried to slide someone in once, and you you you, uh, Probably, you kind of refrained me. Sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose I chose this this movie. Um, this was on me this time, um, and, and a couple of reasons. I just dive into like kind of my relationship to the movie and what kind of appealed to me about what it is, and uh, it always kind of. You know, I do a lot of a lot of research, whether I'm trying to teach a class or like try to find particular cases to show people what's out there and what's available and how to kind of look at stories in a different way. And this happened like maybe eight years ago. I was teaching this short form production class and I was looking at Academy Award winning short films and I was trying to show how to tell a narrative in a short frame of time. And I happened to run across a film called Six Shooter. Have you ever seen this short film? No, I've heard of it though. And for the last, literally for the last eight years, I've shown this film in every class I've taught. And when I had seen it, I didn't initially look at the director. You know, a lot of times we like, we'll watch a film and now especially you and me and every, we'll kind of look and see who directed the film. But when I started showing it in class, I just showed it because I thought it was really well put together and kind of uniquely different. It had its own special voice. So I started showing it in, in class. And then as a result of that, I started to kind of fall into who, he, who, who the filmmaker was. And maybe like a year into showing this in, in this class, a fellow, and you know who this is, you know Matt Jesperson. Mm -hmm. So I, I, he's, a, he's an instructor and he was talking to me about uh, a film called In Bruges. 
And I said, I haven't seen in Bruges. This was years ago, like eight years ago, right? Eight, nine years ago. I said, I haven't seen in Bruges. But I said, he said, well, it's directed by this guy named Martin McDonough. And I was like, well, that's the guy that I show, I've been showing for the last year in this class, his short film. So I've got to go watch him Bruges right. because I love the short film. And it all started coming together. And then, of course, once you watch the short film and then you watch him Bruges, and now it leads into his, this film, right? You just keep, if you like that filmmaker, it resonates with you. You're going to want to see everything that they make. Absolutely. And that's that's the, the thing. As you, If you can't tell, I'm completely uh, immersed and infatuated with Martin McDonough. I think he's fantastic. So much so that I started, uh, Jesperson and I, he, we start reading the, his plays. I bought his plays online. I, I read uh, The Pelican Man and I read Behanding in Spokane. These are two plays that he's written. Um, that eventually ended up on Broadway, but it just, it just resonated so strongly. Uh, and it all started with kind of a little research into how to tell stories in the short form. And so it led to this and seven psychopaths being the sophomore released to in Bruges in Bruges was a podcast number like two that we did right before you jumped on board with us. And I think, I, th- I think we've mentioned this before. I, I gave it a, I gave it a 10 out of 10. Uh, in Bruges is one of my all time favorite movies. Like it, and I actually had no idea until watching seven psychopaths for this podcast that, that Martin McDonough did in Bruges and also did three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I had no idea he did those. And I love both those movies. Um, three billboards was, amazing it was it was incredible amazing. it was incredible i mean woody harrelson in that movie holy shit man like when it, that movie came out i was teaching in los angeles i told my class when it came out the day i saw the day it came out i went to class the next day i told my class i said i'm calling it right here i'm getting miss chloe on you and <laughs> i'm calling francis mcdormand for best actor or best actress mm-hmm. And flash forward, that's like September, October, flash forward to January, February, and she wins it. Because that movie and she, her performance and the way that character is written is so good. It's Everything about that movie is amazing. I mean, he I just... Saw, I saw an interview with him, with Martin McDonough, and they were talking about Seven Psychopaths and a little bit of research I was doing for this. And he mentions uh, Three Billboards. When Seven Psychopaths came out and he was doing the press junket, he was talking about another film that he had already written. So this came out in 2012, Seven Psychopaths. And he was talking about his next follow-up film, which didn't come out till 2017, 2018, I think, uh, which was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And he had already written it. So it was already written. It had been written for years. And he, he, um, he specifically said in relation to Seven Psychopaths, that this film will have a strong female protagonist. He's talking about three billboards. Because when you watch when you watch Seven Psychopaths, he's alluding to the fact that there are very little films, or at least kind of even action-oriented films, or any kind of Hollywood film uh, that has a female protagonist. Mm-hmm. Well, as, you know, I think I mean I, I took it almost as a critique of himself uh, that that line of dialogue when Christopher Walken says, "Your women characters are terrible." You yeah, know, yeah, like most women I know can string more than two sentences together. I, I, yeah. I kind of took that as a critique on himself. And so I, I'm glad that he followed it up. Three Billboards is such a different movie than either this or In Bruges. This and In Bruges are, are different, but they have some similarities. Um, 
but but I mean that was just that's like a whole other world. And for him to be able to do that, to step out into that world is is just insane. Especially like writing is such a small town, America so well, and and he's British, right? Yeah, yeah. So I for him to to be able to do that, he's just immensely talented from the from the three movies I've seen from him. Anything he does, I'm 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 in 100. percent I'm with you on that, if, if, and, and I think we're, we're on the same page. So let's dive into Seven Psychopaths a little bit more and kind of break it down. Um, give me, uh, give me uh, a little bit of, uh, I don't want to get into like favorite scenes necessarily, but just kind of, a, and you mentioned this before, but uh, an overall uh, kind of character perspective, or if we were to dive into any of the psychopaths, as we know there are seven or technically six, <laughs> uh, which technically, ones I think there parts of the story you like most about that. I, I think technically there are only really two. That's true, <laughs> or maybe three. Maybe the Quaker, who's you know based on uh, on Christopher Walken's character. Maybe I don't know, but um, uh, like the opening scene. I mean, first of all, let me say this: if you're going to go into this movie, don't have any expectations because I, I think that's kind of the point of the movie. Like it's almost it almost feels like it's going to be a Guy Ritchie type thing at first. Like you got the mob guys. You think it's going to be like a violent thing. It's called Seven Psychopaths. And uh, in the first scene, they just he just subverts your expectations immediately. Like you you think you know what it's going to be. And it's, it's totally it's something totally different. Like you think these two characters on the bridge are going to be characters that are going to be important going forward. And they're, they're shot within five minutes. Less than that, actually. And it's done in such a great long shot. And, and you kind of notice the Jack of Diamonds coming up from behind him. And from and you see him. And, and as he gets closer, you're like, man, is, he, is that a red mask? What, what's going on here? And all of a sudden pulls out two guns, shoots the guys. And I just I loved the dialogue going into the, that murder, that double murder. I loved everything about that opening scene. And it, it's just such a, a crazy good introduction to this world. And it just tells you that just subvert your expectations because there's nothing you're going to think, you know, what this movie is. And it's not it's not that at all. Yeah. And he's also and you mentioned this before. I mean, it's so meta. It's it's kind of referring to itself. It's looking at conventions of a genre or conventions of storytelling in Hollywood. What I find interesting about that scene is two things for me. One is the opening shot is the Hollywood sign. Mm hmm. And it pans over to these two gangsters that you're referring to. And as soon as it pans over to these gangsters, they're having this discussion. They're talking about movies. They're talking about The Godfather. They're talking about guys getting shot in the eye. John and, Dillinger and yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and so immediately it's for me, and I don't want to, I'm never one to like, I don't, I mean, I am and I'm not. I hate to break things down like I know what they mean exactly because I don't. But at the same time, there's something interesting about the way he opens the movie, which is here's Hollywood. I'm showing you the the, the actual symbol of, of Hollywood, right? right? That, that, that signifies to people's eye what everything means. You see the Hollywood sign and we have ideas about what that is. I'm panning over. These guys are talking about movies like we are now in some sense, but a little different. And then they get taken out. And I think like you're saying, subvert your expectations because ultimately what he's saying is everything that's conventionalized in Hollywood and what you think is going to happen because you see that sign 
it's gonna not be there. It's not, it, and also if it is there, I'm gonna poke fun of it and it's gonna be very meta in its references. I mean, he even says outright, Colin Farrell's character says, I don't want this just to be another movie with a bunch of violence and guns and dudes holding guns, you know? Like it's, uh, it, it, I think it is commenting on Hollywood and it is commenting on, you know, not giving you exactly what you want. I mean, right. he, t he talks about how he wants his main characters, you know, the opening is just, you know, it's violence and it's carnage. And then rather than having a big shootout, they just ride off into the sunset, you know, and, right. and they go out into the desert and talk. And then that's exactly what happens in the movie. Yeah, he, everything that, that ends up happening in a future tense is something that a character mentioned or almost everything is something that a character mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but going back to this opening scene, this this. Uh, this 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 red uh, cover in you know, a red mask comes up. Jacko Diamonds is shoots these two gangsters, uh, and immediately we get a, a, a still frame that says "Psychopath Number One." And 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 so even though you your your expectations are subverted, or you're not sure, there's a big intrigue into what's going to happen because you start out with, and and we have this kind of fascination with violence to some extent. And when we see that, we're immediately kind of drawn in. No, I, I was, I was actually like, okay, I'm kind of uh, interested in what's going to happen. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's that's. I think that's kind of the allure of it, and that's why that's why I say it gets a little wonky later on. It doesn't get wonky. It just turns into something a little bit different. It's still good, but it's not the same movie. It feels like I'm watching a different movie at times. Yeah. Like I feel like we yeah. we he kind of lost track of the story. And I don't know exactly which story we're supposed to be mostly invested in. Are we supposed to be invested in in the dog kidnapping and, and that whole story with Woody Harrelson? Or are we supposed to be more invested in the fact that they're writing a movie together? And I, I'm not quite sure. And I understand what he's doing. I just, I wish there would have been a little bit more focus or emphasis on one of them. Which one did you want to follow? Oh, I wanted to follow Woody Harrelson. Because yeah. that was fun the entire time. And, I mean, the movie the movie stuff is great. There's some great stuff in there. But it just feels like they're, it's leading up to something, and then it just kind of pitters out. And, and it's funny, and it's charming, but it just feels like a different movie when they're in the desert. I think, uh, yeah, to the tonality completely changes. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's interesting that you kind of look at the characters, and you have these kind of A and B line stories that end up converging later on. I mean, it seems traditional to me in a sense of storytelling, and I'm no master screenwriter like freaking Martin McDonough, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea that I'll kind of build one A-line story here, one parallel story here, and ultimately in some essence, they're gonna converge. He does that, um, and I think he does it quite eloquently, kind of works out towards the end, although uh, I can see what you're saying, which is like, as you're going along, like maybe you wanna, you're not, there's a bit of confusion on, on where to go or kind of who to track to, you know? Yeah. And um, it feels like just between this and in Bruges, it feels like he's got a real aversion to violence. It, it almost, uh, it, and this is kind of, I mean, this is totally my, my theory, my opinion, but based on what I saw in seven psychopaths, it feels like he almost feels like he has to throw that stuff in there. Like in Bruges is, is a, a story about, the the dangers of violence and and you know the aftermath of violence and the the hell and the pain that it causes people um and this is is all about how he's trying to avoid violence in a movie about psychopaths so to it's 
it's an interesting thing that he's doing. I, I don't know why. I'd like to get in his head. I'd like to see what his writing process was. And I'd also love to see the different drafts of each script because I think his writing process has got to be fascinating and to see where it starts at to where it ends at because th- there's so much going on there uh, and there's so much meta stuff in, in this movie that I'm just, I'm kind of, I, I, my brain's almost a little broken trying to dissect it. Yeah, it's a little bit of, it's a lot to kind of, is as simple as it is in its, in its initial uh, kind of look into it. It seems like, oh, that's a simple, I think I, there's so much, so, there's so much layering it's, um, you know, I, 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 I'm a big comic fan and I, I hear like uh, interviews with someone like Will Ferrell or somebody and they go, yeah, our movies are dumb. He says, our movies are dumb. He says, but they're layered. And I thought about it and I watched like um, Talladega Nights. And when I first saw it, I was like, that's a fucking stupid movie. <laughs> and then what I'm getting at is like later I'd rewatch it, right? And then I'd watch it again. And I'm like, oh shit, it's funnier every time i watch it there's something that sticks out and he, they call that and this is what him and i forget who's who's his who's uh what's the what's will ferrell's writing partner is it danny uh, mcbride no what's his name the Let's director i can't remember i just wrote judd apatow now he's, he's no it's um damn it i'm gonna shoot myself for not knowing <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless they go we call it layering so even though it seems simple and like you're and, and i kind of what i'm taking from that is like you're talking about McDonough's writing capabilities, like trying to get into it. Like it seems simple, but I think if we rewatched it again a few times and you kept rewatching it and analyzing, like there'd be even more layers that you could probably pull from. Yeah. And that, that was kind of my point is I'd like to know everything that he has going on because it, it feels like there's, it feels like I'm just not uh, quick enough or smart enough to understand all the layers that he's got going on here. Cause I think he is definitely layering. And, uh, one thing I really liked is when Carl Colin Farrell's character, Marty says, you know, I put a lot of heaven and hell stuff in my writing. Um, but I don't know why. And he does that. Like the, he, he absolutely does that. Like if you look at in Bruges, the whole thing is, is a metaphor. I, I think of, of biblical stories. And the whole thing is like biblical imagery and stuff like that. So I, it's just, I would love to see every little layer, every, you know, is this line of dialogue really just a throwaway line or is there something more there? I feel like he's so smart and so sharp that I think he's adding stuff that I will just never understand. And I think there's, <clears throat> there's, excuse me. I think there's also a bit of self-reflection. It's, I mean, the, 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 the title character or the, the, the main character is named Marty. Right. right? right. So he, he, it's almost his exploratory process in writing too. Like right. he, to, when I, when I watch it, I think, oh, he is, he is Colin Farrell's character. This is the feelings that he gets. Sometimes he's uncertain. He's unsure. He's like, I don't know how it ends, but I think it's this thing. Like when he's talking about one of the psychopaths, he's talking about the Viet Cong member who's uh and he's basically saying look i i don't know how it ends but i just know it ends in a horrible fashion right i just know it ends completely violent and so i think there's a little self-reflection in the writing too where he's it's it's his own thoughts and feelings as he's writing what he's writing for this movie and is that like i said the main character's name's marty so i think there's that kind of tie-in and that kind of wink at the audience with that too and it almost feels a little Charlie Kaufman-esque. 
Yeah, I mean, there's the interesting thing about McDonough is that it almost feels like, and, and real quickly, just a side note, I had, a, I did a, because I love McDonough so much, it becomes easy because I'm just like, I love his shit, everything he does. And he was talking about it in Bruges. And they said, how did you write it? And he says, well, I was in Belgium and there was nothing to do. So I was, <laughs> I was in Belgium and I got drunk a lot. And, <laughs> and he's like, what if there were two friends in Belgium? And then that's literally the inception of how he started writing that film. So we're talking about like getting into his, his, his process and I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but it almost feels like it's just his own experiences in a way. Like if you look at in Bruges, you take a piece of your own experience and then he, which was him being in Belgium and nothing to do. Like when you watch in Bruges, Colin, Farr Colin Farrell's character just wants to get drunk. Yep. Let's get a drink. Let's get time. a drink. Yep. The whole time. And the other character is more like straight list. Let's go sightseeing. Uh, let's be a vacationer. And that was, those were the feelings that he said in this interview that he was feeling it was like, part of me just wants to get drunk and not want to see anything. And part of me wants to go see all the beautiful things that are out there. And he's like, what if there are two of them? And so what I'm getting at here is that I think even in Seven Psychopaths with Marty, the character, and all the other psychopaths, they're just kind of thoughts and feelings that come to his head as he's writing. And I'm not trying to explain his writing process. Lord knows that would be a horrible idea. But those are, those are some thoughts I have on it, you know. Um, and, and you mentioned that it's got a little Kaufman-esque vibe to it. And I can see that. And you know what's interesting to me is the very beginning also to me has a little bit of Coen Brothers. It, you know, it, has, yeah. it feels a little Coen Brothers, particularly for me. One of the things I was thinking about were the music choices. When you listen to the soundtrack and you listen to the song selections, I'm like, and I'm a big Coen Brothers fan. I thought, man, this sound, this has a very Coen-esque, nothing's happening, but something's happening. Right, right. And there is violence instigated throughout it. And I just thought, this has a little Coen-esque. And come to find out, as I was doing some research, that music is written by uh, Carter Burwell. And Carter Burwell is the film composer of many, many, most of the Coen Brothers films. So... There is a little bit of that too. You got a little maybe Kaufman, a little bit of Cohen-esque vibe to how the movie is, how it unfolds. Well, and I, and you know, speaking of, of filmmakers that it feels a lot like, it does kind of feel like Guy Ritchie dialogue there when, when the two gangsters at, in the very first scene are talking about getting shot in the eye and one, you know, one doesn't understand and the other one's talking down to him like he's an idiot, you know, like if you got a, thousand bullets being shot one's bound to go through your eye you know and the other guy doesn't understand how it's not a great shot it feels like something out of snatch like it yeah it, it, like with turkish and whoever that his his little buddy was i don't even remember who that was it feels like something like that and um like in bruges he, the only problem i had with in bruges wasn't with the movie it was with the marketing because they marketed i don't know if you ever saw the trailer for it they marketed it like it was a guy Ritchie film like it, they marketed it like it was a lot of violence and a lot of action. And so like I and, you know, Austin Hodgson, he's a good friend of mine. Um, uh, he didn't like in Bruges because of and this is my theory of why he didn't like it. He said it was OK, but I think he was expecting he loves Guy Ritchie. It's like his favorite director. I think he was going in thinking it was going to be that and it wasn't. 
But there is some Guy Ritchie-esque things in there. I mean, it was almost even a little Tarantino with that dialogue at the beginning. And that's why you think you know what's going to happen. Like, you think you know what kind of movie it's going to be, and then it's just totally different. Like, it's almost like uh, McDonough is walking up to the audience and shooting them right there, you know? Because it's like, you 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 know you think you know what's going to happen, and it's just not at all. It's like this, is, this movie called Seven Psychopaths. Uh, it's got like, it's got a lot of big name actors in it and you think it's going to be an action movie and I'm just going to blow away your expectations right now, right off the bat. Yeah, I never, <clears throat> I can see exactly what you're saying. And I know a lot of people want to like, they, they do that. Like when you see something, we hear it all the time. You see a marketing trailer or something put together and either it's, you have a, a certain expectation about what that movie is, or you have seen the whole thing in three minutes. Right. And, and so, but for me, like I've never, and I, I just, I don't, I've never associated the trailer to the film. So as weird as that is, or contrarian as that might be, like, I just, I don't go, I never go in with expectations because I just want to be open as can be. Cause I know. And then as you know, like they cut those trailers a certain way. It's a science. Like I've been in those rooms where they've cut those trailers. And I worked as an assistant editor doing it. And it's a science. It's a, it's a literal, here's how we're laying it out. And it takes months to build these trailers. And so I just never put that much weight into the portrayal of how they market it. Because, uh, but I can see where the misguidance happens, right? People get misguided and they go in thinking, I'm gonna get this type of film. And then because the build has been so big and it doesn't deliver on that, then there, there's a sense of disappointment. So I get that too. You well, know? And I don't understand why anyone would put to, like why any studio would put together a trailer that doesn't reflect what the movie's going to be, at least tonally. Like I don't, you're just setting yourself up for disaster. Like it's going to, it's never going to work out well. You, well, it's, it's butts in seats. Right. Like they just it, what, whatever is going to be enough action to pull them in or a way to put something together. They're not so much interested in conveying the, the proper type of story that the film True. actually is, with the exception of those directors that have pull to do that. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Like when you cut a trailer, the depending on what how, how it works either the studio the marketing of the studio gets control of how that story is told in the, in the trailer or if they're big enough the director gets the oversay they get to tell people what to put in and what not to put in and how to say it so you'll never see a chris nolan film that's not a chris nolan tone right right because he gets the final word but if you're a small director or you're not you're it's, a, it's not as big the studio is going to get control over how that the tonality of that trailer. Well, do you know how how well In Bruges did? I I don't know. I'm going to look that up. I don't know what the budget was and how much they made on that. I can't imagine that they were raking in a lot of money on that movie. I, I don't recall it doing very very well, but 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 if you look at Seven Psychopaths, it did it did actually pretty well. So it, it had an estimated budget of 15 million, and it looks like it came in at right around 33 million in the box office. And I can't imagine they spent, you know, 50% of the production budget on marketing because just it's a small film. So it probably did okay. Like it probably did all right. I actually just looked it up. So in Bruges, the budget was 15 million 
They made uh, the gross in the U.S. was seven million, and the gross worldwide was thirty-four million. So they did good. So they both did pretty well. I yeah. mean, because I think uh, Sun Psychopaths is probably in that same in that same ballpark, right around that. Same yeah, ballpark. I would imagine. So kind of moving on into the story. So we kind of we kind of got off on a Martin McDonough tangent in a in a in a, <laughs> a bit of a. A side, a side note, but that's okay. Um, kind of moving on with Seven Psychopaths. Uh, one of the questions I, I, I want you to answer that, that I think we kind of jumped through was, uh, as, as the story goes on, so you have Marty, played by Colin Farrell, who's a screenwriter. He's basically having a hard time, kind of like we talked about, uh, beating those stereotypes uh, as he's trying to write his new movie and he's trying to figure out new ways to not show violence in a violent film or a, or a film titled, like you mentioned, Seven Psychopaths, um, which can only mean a few things. <laughs> so then he has his friend played by Sam Rockwell, who's, whose name's Billy. And he, uh, later on, it's revealed, of course, that he is one of the psychopaths and he is the Jack O'Diamonds. Um, but, but Marty doesn't know this. Marty's unaware of this until later in the film. And Marty has an associate by the name of Hans, played by Christopher Walken. And they, like we mentioned in the opener, they steal dogs and then they return them for rewards. And one of the interesting plot points or, or one of the interesting, I should say, character arch, arc, arcs is Billy, played by Sam Rockwell, always wants to be part of his overall desire, his overall uh, meaning in life is to have Marty invite him to help him write his screenplay. That's what he wants more than anything in the world. And it makes me but, wonder if that was a little autobiographical. If if he's got some, if Martin McDonough's got someone in his life uh, trying to elbow his way into his movies, he's got. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me. I'm sure there's always someone trying to coattail right. their way into the the writing process. <laughs> That's how you got to do it to some to some degree, I would imagine. Right. But 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 I think that story that character development between the two is, is real funny and it creates a fun dynamic between Marty and Billy. And uh, Billy's a struggling actor slash, slash killer. <laughs> um, and he's, he's always wanting what, what, if you're, if you're looking at the film, what was a, uh, a scene in there that you found funny with the dynamic between Sam Rockwell and Colin Farrell? Was there anything? That, I mean, there's probably a few, but can you think of something that stood out that you like between those two? From the very be every scene they're in together is gold. It's just pure gold from the very beginning. And the fact that um, that Billy really doesn't like Marty's girlfriend. And it's not because she's a bad person or because she's mean or a cunt like he keeps calling her or a bitch like he keeps calling her. It's because he is taking Marty away from him. Like she's taking Marty away from him. Uh the way I look at the, the the triage of of Billy and Marty and Hans, it's almost like the three stages of life. Like you have Billy, who's like a twelve year old boy. Like he wants he can't he can't fathom a movie that doesn't have a shootout at the end. Like he just doesn't understand how it's possible. Uh, and then you have Marty, who is like a like a regular adult, just trying to just trying to get through life without any conflict and just trying to to just. You know, he's got a drink to get through the day and he's just a normal dude. And then you have Hans, who is the stoic old man 
who is just kind of at peace with everything. He's got his faith and he knows he's, he's got questions about the faith, but that's okay. That's part of having faith. And it just, it felt like it was like three stages of life. And that's why I loved watching Billy and Marty kind of uh, interact because it is kind of like an adolescent growing into a, to a, a full blown adult, a functioning adult. Every scene that they're in together is pure gold. It re- I mean, it really is from the very beginning. Uh, I'm trying to think of one of my favorites. I think probably when they're in the car and they're they're trying they're talking about the movie and Hans is there too. They're talking about the movie and just Billy's reaction to no shootout. Like he just he's like, "What? No! No! Absolutely! What are you talking about? No shootout? Like he just can't fathom it. I, it's it's to me that dynamic is golden." Yeah, I think the chemistry between those two, you can't cast it any better. You really First, can't. You have these actors who by themselves could carry a movie. They're just phenomenal. I think Sam Rockwell's great. Of course, Colin Farrell. This is our second in the last few podcasts that we've had Colin Farrell as one of the leads in our yeah. <laughs> in, in a film. We, we we like Colin Farrell. We talked about that before with sac- uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. So I think the chemistry between the two is, it, like you mentioned, it's dynamic. I think when you couple that with just fun, quirky, uh, in some ways for Billy's character, adolescent writing, uh, it's it's very it's very it's a very fun dynamic between the two. I mean, it's it's the silliest things. It, to me, it's always the littlest things that kind of grab me, like the smallest lines that that just throw me off. And there's one in particular that it's it Billy's going to uh, Marty's house. So Sam Rockwell walks up, it's the morning, he knocks on the door, he's leaning his face against the glass, and Billy's, or sorry, uh, uh, Colin Farrell's girlfriend uh, opens the door. And he's like, she's like, Billy's writing today. She's basically like being a little bit snooty, like, you can't come inside because Marty, sorry, Marty is writing today. And he's he's like, well, what are you doing? And she's like, are you doing, are you doing yoga? And then she's like, I was. And he's like, and then he starts to work his way in the house. And then this that slight line of like, can I watch? Right. And you're, right. And you're just like, what is this? Who is this guy? Cause even those little lines will make you go, okay, there's a little something off with that. Cause no one says, Hey, are you doing yoga? Can I watch? Well, it's, it's, it's him being like an adolescent, child like he's it's almost like this is way before either of our time but in leave it to beaver you had like the eddie haskell character it's almost like he comes around like hi mrs cleaver how you what are you doing can i help you wash dishes or like dennis the menace or something you know it just feels like a very childlike thing to do and then obviously you know adolescent he's a little perverted he wants to watch her do yoga but that's all and that's a funny it's an interesting comparison i never thought we'd bring leave it to beaver i, I know right i don't know how podcast. i don't even know how i know any of those characters names hey i i i i think that was great i think that was a great and, and it is a little bit like that he's kind of inviting himself in and kind of making his presence known and once you get it once he gets in this this really upsets marty's girlfriend so she leaves and then he starts lacing into her about how how fucking stupid she is he hates her so bad and they get into their little their little adolescent quarrel, uh, but just that dynamic and like you said, the 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 other one is uh, the the other scene that stands out in terms of the dynamic between Marty and Billy is is when is is later on when 
Marty finds out that Billy truly is a psychopath and he's killed uh, a, a woman. And they come, they're in the desert and they're getting grown, like, you know, getting some supplies. They come back to the campground. And this scene to me, when he finds, he confronts him, they go, first off, they say, let me, let me get the, uh, Hans, who's Christopher Walken says, hey, can, where's that peyote? I mean, it's only, it's naturally fitting. They're at Joshua Tree National Park right. in the desert. Peyote only makes sense. And once they start drinking, and, and, and Marty's drinking, and Hans is doing peyote, and then, and then Marty says to, to Billy, hey, are we going to talk about the elephant in the room here? And he's like, once they start, he's like, this scene, the dynamic between Marty confronting Billy, like, hey, I know who you are. I know you're a killer. I know you killed a woman. I can't associate with you. Like my best friend is a psychopath. The whole response to him is hilarious. He's talking about, you know, how he was, he, he, he did it to motivate him to write the screenplay and all these kind of things. And you're just like, Oh my gosh. And he's like, you shot a woman in the stomach. And he's like, well, at least I didn't shoot her in the face. You know, it's like, just like little things, this 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 scene kills me. And they get the they they try to get in the right before they try to get into the car to leave because Marty's had it. He can't take it anymore. And then all of a sudden the car blows up. Right. It blows up. And this is this scene's so funny. They run over. Marty thinks Billy's in the car, and he's like, Billy, Billy. And then Billy pops his head out of the tent. He's like, Don't be mad. Don't be mad. <laughs> I, it, and then, it's just like a little kid. It's just a little kid, and he tells them that he's called the mafia gangster who they stole the dog from, and he's coming out. But he's agreed. Don't worry. He's agreed. He's agreed to come alone and unarmed. And this is after they've already talked about earlier when they're kind of pitching their movie ideas how the, 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 mafia, the, the mafia gangster guy, he's not going to come alone even if he says he is. You know, like, so it's like, are you so stupid? You even pitched us this idea. My favorite part about Billy in the, in the whole movie is it's it's the littlest touch, but it's when Colin Farrell finds his diary, and on the diary it says Billy's super secret diary. Do not open, and it's just it it. I mean that tells you everything you need to know about that character, and Sam Rockwell plays that just perfectly. And can we say that the journal entry is hilarious? Which is seven a.m. Stared at the neighbor's American flag. Seven p.m. Still staring. Eleven hours later, still staring at the flag. I watched. The follow-up entry to that is, "Don't burn the neighbor's flag." <laughs> well, and it's not even the flag. He's watching the shadow come across his lawn. He's like, "That's eleven hours." Like, eleven hours. Eleven hours. Staring. Note to self: Don't burn the neighbor's flag. <laughs> and then he looks, and it's half burned. It's, I mean, it's just it's per. He is such a psychopath. He, he's like a, a child if they had uh, the means to be an adult and go you know, live out every one of their fantasies. And there's what, what he does good in the build of this character, Billy. I mean, first off, we mentioned Sam Rockwell's great. So that, that helps a ton by casting the right person. But additionally, what makes him is that you've got a psychopath, right? Somebody who is crazy, who is willing to kill someone for what he thinks are the right reasons. He thinks literally that if he kills someone, it'll help his friend. So he's, he's, he can't attach, 
he has a detachment. He's unaware that you don't, A, the moral code of not killing, but he thinks it's a good thing because he's helping his friend. Can't understand why it's a problem. <laughs> they don't understand. So the childish nature of what that character is. And Sam Rockwell portrays that so, so Oh, he's good. just so good. Just perfectly cast, dead on. In the, in, the, in the plot, essentially, of the story, what's happened is Billy and Hans have stole uh, Bonnie, who's a Shih Tzu, um, that's owned by Woody Harrelson. And essentially, Woody Harrelson is on the... He has a complete breakdown uh, without with knowing his dog has been kidnapped or is gone. He's so attached to this dog. I think that, that dynamic's really kind of funny, too, which is you have this hardcore mafia kind of gangster italian gangster guy played by woody harrelson who has a complete affinity for his dog and can't live without her uh and he is i never if you would have described this character to me i wouldn't have thought woody harrelson first of all he's you know he's supposed to be a, a high-ranking guy in the italian american uh <laughs> mafia yeah. and he's clearly not italian there's blonde hair, blue eyes. Exactly. Clearly not Italian. And secondly, I, you know, I wouldn't have ever thought he could be very menacing because Woody Harrelson's either. I mean, he's usually pretty funny. Uh, he's not ever really menacing. He's kind of got that, you know, that country bumpkin, good old, you know, he's almost like comforting. And he's actually pretty scary at, at points in this. Like when he's in the hotel room or not the hotel room, the hospital room with, uh, with Hansa's wife like that's that's intense and you can see the crazy and you can see the intensity in his eyes it's scary and Woody Harrelson did a great job give him credit yeah that seems really uh really well done and that I forget her name but the woman who portrays Hansa's wife she's really good so good really really good and, and Woody Harrelson like you said I think mostly we don't really see him that way a lot of stuff that I see him in is or in my mind's eye when I think about him is Something like, you know, white men can't jump or, you know, something like cheers, you know, even like Ed TV or just <laughs> right. something that's that's a little more, uh, I guess. Of course, he has a couple others. Like you look at like the people versus Larry Flint, like he's got some more. And the other one that he has a menacing kind of dynamic, of course, natural born killers. But like, but even in that, even in that, I don't think he's very scary. It's not the same type of scary. Right. I think he's I mean, the psychoticness is still there. Right. Oh, no. for sure, for sure. I mean, you can, <laughs> you can see that recklessness, that reckless nature. But when he turned on the the intimidation, it was surprising because, like you said, you know, you don't see him in that. He, he's got dramatic chops, and he's he's really good at at being comical. But you don't really think. I mean, I still, this is you know how old I am. I grew up watching Cheers, and so I still love think Cheers, of him as. He? We'll go down a whole side tangent. Uh, yeah. Alan. <laughs> I loved we could do a whole podcast on how much I love Cheers. Cheers is 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 like the perfect sitcom. It really it's so is. Good. It's so good. Sorry, I don't want to get too far into it, but I'm a hundred <laughs> it's funny because we've never talked about this before, but we can see eye to eye on Cheers. Oh, I love it. Like I'm that's in my top ten TV shows of all time. Ooh, really? It's way yeah, up there then. hundred percent. It I can tell you the spectrum right now. The spectrum is breaking bad number one. Without question, for me, without question, Breaking Bad, number one, and Cheers is going to fall the in the top ten, the lower, the higher mm -hmm. end of that spectrum, but it's going to be in there. My, so, with without a doubt, Breaking Bad, number one. Without a doubt. Interesting, huh? See, I can't. I went into Breaking Bad after hearing all the hype, 
and nothing can ever live up to hype. Like it just, it just can't. So I, I was a little disappointed. I don't want to say disappointed. It's a phenomenal show, but I didn't love it as much as everyone else because I think I was expecting something. It's not just... even about, yeah, I got you. It's not even about that everyone liked it. I mean, I watched it from the get go. I watched it from the beginning all the way through. And then of course, when it got season three, got started to put on Netflix and it started to do that while they were still airing it on AMC. And um, it just, the, the fascination with me, when I saw the interview with Vince Gilligan about his development of the character, which he said, it's Mr. Magoo meets Scarface. Right. I just went, done. That to me is the simple, you talk about writing, we were talking about Martin McDonough, but the simplest of approaches to pitch an idea, we all can understand what that means. And then we follow that storyline and it's phenomenal. Well, where the idea came from is right after the X-Files was done. Yeah. And yeah. he said, well, I might as well go sell meth now. That's how I'm going to make yeah. money. And that's where the show came from. Yep. Yep. So, uh, but Cheers is great. I love yeah. Cheers. And Woody Harrelson's fantastic. There is that scene in Seven Psychopaths where he first, we first meet him, essentially. And his dog's been kidnapped. And the, the woman who he had uh, tending his, his dog and, giving, and walking his dog, he, he's going to kill her. Like he's, he's going to kill her literally pulls the gun out and pulls and it, and it's an empty load. And it, it jams the gun, jam, his the gun jam. always jams. Yeah, that's and what it is. The, the way this scene is put together is just, it's so perfect. Like it, the pacing, the, the acting, everything about it, where he put the camera, like every, every single thing about that, that scene is perfect. It's the perfect scene. It's and the hilarious. timing of it too, where he pulls the gun jams, he gets mad, hands the gun to one of his, his side. He men. even apologizes to her. Yeah, I'm sorry. This thing. Why don't and his buddy goes? Why don't you get a new one? He's like, because I love the blue hand. <laughs> like, who thinks of that? Like, these are the kind of writing things that that I think are so good. Which right. is like, the blue handle. Like, really, that's what you care about? Is the blue handle? The gun doesn't operate. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. It, well, and then how he lets her go too. But he he can't just let her go. He's got to scare the shit out of her. First. Yeah, like, it's it's just it's, everything about that scene is great, and that's a great shot. You talk about technicality of the camera, and finally they get the gun to work, and he's like, "I'm sorry," and then he's got to scare the shit out of her. He shoots the gun, but it goes right past her, doesn't hit her, and then she's like in shock. You just see a close up of her face, and then it slowly pans up, and there's a smoke yeah. hole in the wall. Love it, and you're like, "It's so good." It, it's and you're right, so that well. scene is just so. It's it's one of those scenes that's so simple. Like it's it's really a back and forth. It's like him, her, him, her, kind of just going back right. and forth. And it's nothing over overly complicated, overly dramatic, no huge technical approaches to the shots, but just really well done with timing and with performance. Yeah, I agree. And and then the the introduction of the third guy, uh, giving some important information about where the dog probably went after he already tried to kill her. And right. failed, you know, like it's just, it just, it tells you everything you need to know about that crew, those people, what they're like. It's, it's, and it sets the whole movie up. I love it. Yeah. He's great. His character is great. So it, he's, he's on the hunt for his dog is basically what it is. And this whole time, Billy, Sam Rockwell has the dog and eventually they get a little, uh, they, they, they do some tracking down some investigation. They find a way, uh, the, the, to get into, this warehouse where Hans, Christopher Walken, and Sam Rockwell have been keeping all these kidnapped dogs. And they, they get to the, uh, the warehouse where they're keeping them. But right before this, I want to say one thing about a scene. 
where you have Colin Farrell and Sam Rockwell at that warehouse where they're where they're holding all the dogs. Hans is not there because he's visiting his wife. He's visiting his wife at the cancer ward in the hospital. And her, and 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 uh, there's this great little interaction between Billy and Mar and Marty where he's talking about the Irish and he's talking about the curse of the Irish I, and alcoholism. You know and what? It's just his own. It's all a poke of. It's a little poke at himself there. I I uh, I dropped the ball earlier when you were asking about favorite scenes between those two. I think that's it. Like I, it's the way Billy's just like. You're a writer and you're Irish. You're fucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, it's so great. <laughs> you're done. Yeah. Um, and Billy's, he's, they basically argue. Then Billy's reading the LA Weekly. And this is where, or sorry, uh, Colin Farrell is reading the LA Weekly. And Sam Rockwell is like, oh, hey, are you reading the LA Weekly? Oh, okay. Uh, uh, wait, did I give. And he's talking about the other dog who they're not keeping at this warehouse. He's like, did I give Bonnie her, uh, her, uh, her water? Okay. Well, I'm going to go give her water. I'll be right back. If you're reading the LA weekly, he's like, jump to page 163. <laughs> I may have put something in there that, that, that may or may not upset you. But... <laughs> and so he leaves, he leaves Colin Farrell, Colin Farrell's character at the warehouse. And then it, you hear the voiceover. Oh, it's great. It's great. The, the voiceover is great. Calling all psychopaths. It's just, it, I just, I don't know. I love, I like, I am just in love with this movie at this point. Everything about it is great. Sam Rockwell, he, that whole thing where he's like, oh, wait, wait, LA Weekly, wait, hold on, hold on. Like, I was watching it with Jess, my girlfriend, and like, as, right after he gets out the door and he's like trying to stop him from reading it, and Telly walking out the door, and he's like, okay, go ahead and read it. Like, the way he played that, Jess is like, man, that was stressful. Because he really, it's it kind of, you kind of feel like what what the what is this guy doing? Like what what is yeah. it? I don't understand his deal. And then you kind of you get to the to the payoff there. He's just everything that he does in this movie. And I sound like a broken record, but I just he's he's fantastic. I think if you were an actor, right, or an aspiring actor, and we say this a lot, or, or I tend to say it a lot, but I really think it's true. If you were trying to do any kind of study into acting. I think Sam Rockwell is a good person to look at for time. Like the ability to deliver a line of dialogue and the pace in which you move within a scene, the physicality, just simple stuff. He's so good at it. And it alludes to what you're saying, which is his slow movement backwards and then his slow delivery of the lines. And then finally the payoff of like, hey, page 163. Right, right. And he's putting he's on his jacket while he's walking backwards. He even bumps into the door. I, it just, it's so well done. Yeah, those physical, those physical movements are, are great. So then it, it, you hear the voiceover of this classified that he's put into the LA Weekly, which is basically calling all psychopaths. And he basically alludes to the fact that if you have this problem, this problem, or you've done this, he's trying to literally call anybody who is a psycho. And he's like, I'm helping, helping my friend Marty write his screenplay, Seven Psychopaths. I just love that he adds it in there where he's where he's helping his friend write the screenplay, even though, of course, Marty never invited right, him to right. write the screenplay. And he's helping in the dumbest way again, like just the dumbest possible way. Yeah, just classified at it yeah, weekly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, he's left, which and and so a little bit later, what ends up happening is Marty uh, Hans comes back to the warehouse. Marty is there, but Sam Rockwell Billy is not there. And 
they've done some work where Woody Harrelson's character and his his boys and all his mafia his mafia guys find a way to the warehouse and they go in and and there's this uh or, or sorry Woody Harrelson doesn't go right no just he his doesn't boys just right his boys is what I meant so his henchmen go to the warehouse to try to find the shih tzu and they have Hans and Marty held up by gunpoint and you're like oh man someone might die here and then out of nowhere Jacko Diamonds with the mask on walks in and blows him down how convenient and walks away and walks away and the best part is Christopher Walken is not phased by it at all by any of that no. shit at all which reminds me of my one of my favorite Christopher Walken scenes in this entire film towards the end when he's once again not phased by guns at all this is the point where his wife's been murdered by Woody Harrelson's character. He gives a shit about nothing in a sense, right? He still right. does, but he doesn't. And he leaves the desert because there's a little feud between Billy and, and Marty. And as he's walking away, Woody Harrelson's henchmen run across him in the desert on the, on the road. And they hold him up by gunpoint. And they're like, put up your hands. And he's like, no. Why not? Why I don't not? want to. I don't want to. That doesn't. And then I love the response of the it's henchman. Like, this is a gun. Like, this is a gun. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, anyway, I, I just love that that nature of him, and he does that before. You're right. He does, in this warehouse scene, he doesn't give a shit either. Right. He's 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 unfazed. Um, but but ultimately, Jacko Diamond saves the day. How convenient. And we convenient. find out why later. Yes. So kind of moving on, ultimately, uh, Woody Harrelson finds who took uh, his dog after it's kind of revealed to the audience that the person who took his dog is Billy. And Billy has been sleeping with Woody Harrelson's girlfriend. And so that's where he kind of was introduced or knew who the Shih Tzu was. And while... That scene while he's he's attempting to have sex with his girlfriend and he can't and he's just talking about how limp his dick is. Look at that limp piece of shit. He's just like, look at that limp piece of shit. And then she says, it's okay. And take take off. She says, take off the rubber. And he's like, she's like, it's okay. I trust you. And he's like, trust me. You're still dating that mafia guy. You're still dating that mafia guy. He knows what he gave you. And then she gets all mad. He's like, well, I don't mean AIDS. I just meant <laughs> chlamydia or something, baby. Chlamydia or something. <laughs> that whole scene is just <laughs> ridiculously funny. But, but nonetheless, that's where it's revealed that uh, uh, she gets up. She's upset. She calls her boyfriend. And during the call, uh, Billy gets a call from Hans. And Hans, what has happened is that, of course, Woody Harrelson's character has in the hunt for Hans and trying to find his dog runs across his wife at the hospital and kills her. And so Billy gets a call from Hans saying, Hey, Myra, my wife is dead. And this kind of, it's kind of interesting because someone who is, a, who is now later revealed as a psychopathic killer, he has a little bit of emotion to the response of hearing that his friend's wife is dead. Yeah. That's the one thing I'll say is I'm not sure, you know, I, I, you know, I, I like reading about serial killers and all that kind of weird shit. You know, everyone does these days. It's 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 popular. 
So I, I will say Martin McDonough probably doesn't know really what a psychopath is because a psychopath doesn't have any moral code. And everyone in this movie has a moral code. Even Woody Harrelson, like probably the closest to a psychopath that we get, has a moral code. And it's his dog. Dexter. Now, Dexter. But again, not a real psychopath. Could be. Well, you know what? Could be because he was taught by his dad to do that because his dad saw the signs. He was taught to hide the emotion. That's right. Or or, Or to fake it. Or to show the emotion even though he didn't feel it. Right, right. And he was taught to to go after the the depraved. Yeah. So make it more. So there's a bit of a code there, essentially, in some sense. Good point. But but we digress. Nonetheless, what happens is that Billy. Uh, it's revealed that while while uh, his girlfriend or or Woody Harrelson's girlfriend is on the phone, he shoots her in the stomach, and then the reveal is uh, a, a a card. He throws the Jacko Diamonds card on the on the ground by her, and that's the big reveal that he is that first person that we talked about in the opening scene. He is that psychopath. He's also the psychopath at the warehouse who had saved Marty and Hans when the henchmen of Woody Harrelson came to the warehouse. And so now we know that he is psychopath number seven, as well as psychopath number one. And I, I think most movies would have saved that twist towards the end. But Yeah, he kind of reveals it right there. And that's what's interesting is the reveal there is that, is that or at least more towards the end, but nonetheless, like what's going to happen now is that we're going to kind of play it out as Marty sees it, which is like, let's go to the desert and be peaceful. And then we're also going to play it out as Billy sees it, which is like, let's go to the desert for the best shootout ever. Right, right. And it, I mean, it's that whole, the whole thing, the whole shootout idea is hilarious. And honestly, there was a point there where I'm wondering, are they going to do the shootout or are they not going to do the shootout? Because he's already talked about how he doesn't want to have a shootout in his movie. And this feels, you know, like, like a very autobiographical character. So is he not going to do it? Or is he going to do it? Because they keep teasing it. And thank God they did it because it was awesome. Yeah, it's cool, too, because after he, he kills the girlfriend, he runs back to Marty and Hans and he gets there just in time for him to to take those two to the desert before Woody Harrelson shows up at their apartment. They drive out to the desert and they're having the conversation about the shootout. and They're having the conversation about the different psychopaths in the screenplay, like the Viet Cong uh, character, the psychopath. That scene that that I love that you're kind of that is, is when they're pulling up and you see uh, there's a cross on the big rocks, Christian cross. And he's like, Oh, that's the perfect place for a shootout. I mean, I know we're not going to have a shootout, but if we were going to have a shootout, that would be the perfect place for a shootout. <laughs> so I wonder where they have it at the end. In a and, perfect and place. So I just love that. He, he puts it all on the nose and right. then he pays it off. I think that's kind of hard to do, which is like, I'm going to tell you what happens and then we're going to have it still happen and still be interesting or still leave you up in question. Like you mentioned, you're like, are they going to have it? Are they not? Right. And it kind of keeps the ball rolling because otherwise, if you just tell people what's going to happen and then you show them what's going to happen, it doesn't quite pay off. But somehow he's able to make it work where he tells you and then he shows you. Right. And one thing I, I do want to say that we kind of we, we, we missed was the second psychopath, which is the Quaker. Because I think that story with the Quaker is so good. And it's so clever. And it's like one of those things. It's like, man, I wish I would have thought of that and turned it into a short. And Harry Dean Stanton plays the Quaker. And man, does he do a good job. Uh, I mean, it's just, 
it, it's creepy. It's good. It's it's like the perfect type of redemption story. Um, and basically, I mean, the, the twist at the end is like, you know, the only place where the Quaker won't be able to follow you is in hell. And the only way to get to hell is to kill yourself. So the, the guy kills himself. And what does the Quaker do? Pulls out a blade and slits his own throat. I just thought that was just so well done. And I loved it. And then you find out later that it's Christopher Walken. Only he didn't die. Yeah. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, like Christopher Walken was a psychopath. And this is why I say that he's, he's a typical kind of, like, the three of them are the, the different stages of life. Like, he is definitely an old man where he even says in the car, like, you know, at, at the time, I thought it was the right thing to do to, to you know, to terrorize this guy who, who killed my, my daughter. But now I'm not so sure it was. And he's definitely the old wise man. And he kind of sacrifices himself at the end. And I just, that whole storyline I thought was great. Yeah, that, that psychopath number two at the Quaker is great. And it, you mentioned like uh, using, I mean, yeah, that would have been one you would have loved to have created and made a short film based yeah. off of that, after that character. Yeah. Absolutely. And Harry Dean Stanton, fantastic. And he's also in one of my favorite movies called Paris, Texas. So you should watch that one. I've it's never awesome. seen it. It's so good. Um, by a German filmmaker named Wim Wenders. And it's a great movie. Played at Sundance in 1984. But... That that character of the, of the Quaker is is really good. I love one of the things that we've neglect, we haven't mentioned quite yet is and it, and it alludes to what you're saying, which is the way that McDonough creates little stories within the big story. So the Quaker is an example of one of those, but he uses the psychopaths arc of their own stories and he interlaces them into the bigger picture. So you have the Quaker. And then you have the Viet Cong. And, and that story is quite interesting, too, right. where you have this guy who's, who's been, uh, his family's been murdered by Charlie Company back in Vietnam. And his whole thing is retribution. He wants to kill everyone who killed his family. I mean, that's even an intriguing story. And I think it's saying a lot about a lot. It's saying a lot of things in a very small packaged format. Definitely. That one's uh, interesting to me. And then I love how at the end where Christopher Walken, after they take the peyote and things, <laughs> things calm down a little bit, how finally Christopher Walken, uh, he kind of, he, he participates in helping Marty write his screenplay, right. helping Colin Farrell write his screenplay. Colin Farrell was struggling with that Viet Cong character. He's like, what do I do? He thought initially it was just going to be it's just going to be gore and violence all the way throughout. And he was going to get revenge and retribution for them killing his family. I got to say in the first rendition of that, where Colin, Fer Colin Farrell's talking about the Viet Cong guy getting retribution, you had to have loved that. Cause there's some gore and uh, blood in there. Uh, not only that, but the Tom Waits story, uh, when Tom Waits Fantastic. comes and tells his story, uh, I loved that whole sequence because it is just total gore. That's why this podcast warrants almost another podcast because we haven't even talked about Tom Waits yet. I know we really haven't because he's great in this too. Like the cast, once again, you think, "Oh, I got Colin Farrell. We're good. That's all I need." Yeah, yeah, right. And then you're like Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, Christopher Walken, right. and just to throw a sprinkle on, uh, we'll have Tom Waits in the film. What? <laughs> Usually, you would think that Christopher Walken would be the sprinkle on top of just, just you know. Just Colin Farrell, yeah, and it's like we'll, we'll get we'll get a supporting, uh, you know, legendary actor in Christopher Walken, but they they keep going, man. I, how he got all, all these guys, I don't know. 
I don't know either. But that Viet Cong character, when, when Walken gives him the idea that instead of having him have retribution on everyone killing his family, his version of that is that he's a, a Buddhist monk. Yeah. And he's at, instead of instead of getting retribution for the war that happened in Vietnam and the all the killing and, and the murderous nature of what that was, he's a monk who uh, defies and and uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Emulates. Are you talking about yeah. setting himself on fire? No, yes, but there's what's the word? I'm, he not defies. He uh, oh, in in protest of violence, in protest of war, he emulates him. Is it emulates? Emulate. Emulate. Yeah. He burns himself. Right. And which is a true story of people who were in protest against the war when that happened. They, you know, some of these monks set themselves on fire. Yeah, that that uh, very famous Rage Against the Machine cover has that that very famous oh, photo true. of uh, of the monk emulating himself. Yeah. So I, I like that he he changes the character. Initially, you think he's going to be a psychopath. You think that he's going to go the direction of the violence, and then he goes the direction of uh, uh, peace and, and protest. It's still violent, it's just, though. It's just self-violence. Still, it's, it's still super violent. It's still <laughs> extremely hard to fathom and to watch. Right. But yes, in a different way. But I think the notion of it, this is going to sound controversial, but I think the notion of it's good, which is it, the nature of him just getting retribution and murdering for the sake of murdering, right, for, for, for getting revenge versus protesting the fact that this is happening. Like there's a little different weight to how those compare. Right. It's, it's, um, but I like that Walken throws that into it. So he essentially helps him kind of build that character in the screenplay. And you almost wonder, once again, did someone like throw him an idea about, hey, instead of doing this, try that. And you're like, yeah. And then he like uses that thing. Like right. you were saying before, like the person who's always trying to jump in your story. <laughs> it it feels like in the right way. It feels like, and that's one reason why I, I didn't, I didn't get lost at points, but I just, I, I think I was taken out of the story a little bit because it feels like there are a lot of anecdotes going on. And um, in a film called Seven Psychopaths, you expect like all the psychopaths to be real. But only what two of them, I think, are actually real. We got to do the math on that because psychopath number one is J uh, Jack of Diamonds. Yep. So he psychopath number two is the Quaker. The Quaker. Three was. I can't remember who three was. What? Uh, I think no. No. Four was the uh, the Vietnamese guy, the Vietnamese priest. Five and six were Tom Waits and his wife. Tom Waits. We'll get into those real quick in just a minute. Right, and then seven was the was the uh, was Sam Rockwell again. So we're missing three. Uh, I can't remember who well, three is. Well, number two is Woody Harrelson. Oh, that's right. That's right. Woody Harrelson. That's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot going on. So there's, I, there's I just felt like I wasn't sure where the story ended and then the the story within the story be began like it just kind of felt confusing and it kind of was kind of floating around in there and and i mean it's not bad i mean it's still very good and and even when you're in these these extra stories it's still very well done and very entertaining but i just i would have liked to seen the the story be a little bit more 
cohesive. I mean, you can throw that stuff in there. It just seems like he got lost a little bit in the side stories, like I said. And yeah, that, I mean, a, that's the only knock I have. There's a lot of short stories happening in the bigger picture. Right. And that's not bad. It just wasn't, it, I, I just wasn't feeling it a whole lot. That's the only knock I really have on this movie at all. So quickly, not quickly even, but just to kind of get it, get it moving here. Um, essentially as they, as they, uh, they have a, a, a showdown. Um, what happens is that Marty and Billy, uh, are at the in the desert and sure enough like we mentioned before he after burning the car and blowing up the car he had called woody harrelson's character and told him to come alone and come unarmed he does and then they're shocked shocked when he comes alone (laughs) yeah which is what 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 billy was saying the whole time right uh, that you would never think would happen and sure enough it does happen right and he shows up (laughs) <laughs> when he shows up unarmed and all alone, Billy tells him to turn around, show him his, so he can lift up his, 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 his shirt to make sure there's no gun. And he shoots him in the back. <laughs> and so he's like, you just shot him. In, and, and Carl Farrell's like, you shot him in the back. And he's like, yeah, I was going for the spine. And uh, it doesn't kill him. It's missed him. It, it, it's, not a, it's not a fatal shot. And um, what a, so there's not really a shootout. They're kind of, it, it's not what, the climatic shootout didn't happen, at least quite yet. And, it, well, and then when this happens, I'm thinking like that was the shootout. Like that's really, he's really going to go down this road and that's what we're going to get for the, for the big shootout that's been teased. Like he's really going to go along with this whole, you know, anticlimactic thing that he's been building up and it goes back to that question that we were saying before which is like will it happen when's it going to happen right. is it going to happen and then you kind of think yeah hey th- that was it right right <laughs> but sure enough colin farrell says look i'm going to take this he's got that moral code because he's a person he's like i'm going to take the injured woody harrelson to the hospital in this car that he's he's brought and that's it and that, like, he starts driving to the hospital. Well, my favorite has, part is when he gets in the car, he takes a pole off the uh, the whiskey bottle and then throws it out. And Woody Harrelson goes, is he drinking and driving? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's your big worry right now, huh? <laughs> that's your worry right now? You're bleeding down? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they end up driving away. And then as they're driving away, they run across uh, Woody Harrelson's henchman. They stop the car, and sure enough, they turn back because Billy, Sam Rockwell, still has the Shih Tzu. He still has Woody Harrelson's dog, and Woody Harrelson's not fatally wounded, so they turn around, and they go back. And, and uh, right before, what's also interesting is, is Billy says to, to Marty, hey, you want this gun? And Marty goes, no, I don't want the gun. He's like, I'm not a man of violence. Right. And as they're driving away 10 minutes later, as the henchmen stop him, with the gun, Woody Harrelson goes, I bet you would, I bet you would have, t- I bet you would have taken that gun, you know? And he's like, no, I'm not. But they go back. And as they go back, this is where we get the climactic shootout. Right. Well, and he, and before this, Woody Harrelson's henchman killed Hans. And, um, it, 
Hans kind of sacrificed himself because he saw the cops were, were pulling up and he knew that, that his friends were going to be in big trouble uh, if the henchmen go and find them. So since he saw the cops pulling up, he acted like he was pulling out a gun. The henchmen shoot him so that the cops will um, will will stop them. I mean, they don't. But the thing that I thought was kind of funny, though, was once Colin Farrell gets back and he sees that Hans has been shot, he tries to run up to the body, and there's a cop there, and he stops him. He's like, he's my friend. And it's like, oh, okay, go right ahead. Go <laughs> go search. At, you know, and he, he pulls the tape out of his clothes. It's like, that's not at all what would happen. They're, you know, they would be, have it roped off, and especially if you were a friend, they wouldn't want you to see him. Yeah, because the tape is basically Christopher Walken giving him ideas about the Viet Cong character. Right. And that's how he finds out how to change it later in the screenplay. Right. But yeah, the, the, the absurdity of like the cop going, yeah, this is not a, uh, a murder scene. Right. Go ahead and jump in. Not only that, but tamper with the evidence by going through his, his pockets and taking <laughs> stuff. You know, like it's ridiculous. It, it, it's, it's old school uh, Joshua Tree police. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, but he does get the tape that has some of that stuff. But they go when they go back. There's basically now we have a standoff, like a real, a real standoff. Um, and uh, Billy starts just mowing down the henchmen and shooting the henchmen. They crash the car, <laughs> starts shooting up. He's got guns. He's shooting them up. And then Marty and Billy, or not Marty and Billy, uh, Woody Harrelson, uh, Charlie starts to, they, they have a little standoff. They each have a gun, but Billy's holding a gun to uh, Bonnie's head. <laughs> He's holding the gun, the dog's head. Wasn't he holding and, a flare gun to, to, to the dog's a, head? Yeah, it's a flare gun. <laughs> so he starts threatening that he's going to kill the dog. And so, of course, that kind of holds holds Woody Harrison back a little because he doesn't want his dog dead. He loves his dog to, to the end of the earth. Uh, and then it just kind of ends in the sense that Charlie Woody Harrelson shoots and he said, and, and Billy says the movie ends my way. Essentially he shoots and he's dead. Yeah. That's it. That's it. I mean, there was a shootout. Don't get there me wrong. There was a shootout. But... Listening to this, there is a shootout, but it does just kind of end right there it... with Billy now dead. There's no real, uh, you know, satisfaction. There's no real closure, I should say. As you well, you kind of—I mean, there is a little bit later because it's not quite the ending, but it's close enough where I thought with Billy, I thought, man, I kind of wanted to see him live. There's a weird thing about Billy because as as much of a psychopath, murderous psychopath as he is, he's endearing. You like him, very endearing. I, you know, I, yeah. I do. But he's dead. And one thing we wanted to mention is when he made that ad in the LA Weekly, that Tom, this is where Tom Waits' character actually comes into play. He's the one that responded to the ad and sits down with Colin Farrell to tell him his story. And his story is about him and his wife who go on a murderous rampage. They go around revenge, killing serial killers. Killing serial killers. So they have the Dexter mentality. Yeah, yeah. They killed the Texarkana guy. They killed another dude. I mean, when, when she's sawing that guy's head off in the mental ward, you I mean, loved I, I loved every second of it. It was amazing. <laughs> and then uh, later on, they find the Zodiac and they stab knives through his hands so he can't <laughs> leave the table. So they stab like through the hands into the table so he can't move. They dump gasoline on him and set him on fire. And He's it's just it's so good. It's, I loved it. I loved it. 
And so with, with that, um, one of the things while he was conveying this story, his name is Zachary, played by Tom Waits. And while he's relaying this story to Marty, he's like, the only thing that I ask in return for this story that I'm telling you and all these truths is that you give me recognition and you, you leave a message at the end of the film because he left his, uh, the woman that, that was doing all these things with him, Bonnie, or not Bonnie, I'm sorry. Um, I'm trying to remember her name now. Is it Maggie? Maggie, thank you. So he, he says, I still love her, but we, we split ways after that because we kind of we differentiated. We didn't think the same way. It was kind of getting to him, essentially killing him. Yeah, he didn't, kind of, he didn't enjoy the murder as much as Maggie did. Yeah, she loved, she loved murdering it. people. <laughs> yeah, she loved it. <laughs> Um, and so his, his whole thing is just give this message to her at the end of the film. And what I find funny in the line is that Marty says, I will, he says, I'll, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put my life on it. I, like prom- I promise on my life. I promise my life. Way over the top. Way and I just say, yeah. Okay. <laughs> essentially his, he responds to saying, Hey, that's one, that's a, that's a big promise. <laughs> So once Billy's now dead, what ends up happening right after they shoot him, uh, Marty gets in the, the car, he gets away, right before I should say, Marty gets in the car, he gets away. Essentially, Billy lets Marty get free, you know, by holding Bonnie the dog hostage. Marty is free from Woody Harrelson's character. He takes the car and drives off. After he frees his friend, he basically makes sure his friend is quote unquote safe. That's when he gets shot, he dies. And right after Sam Rockwell dies, the cops show up. And sure enough, they, they basically bust Woody Harrelson for this murder. Then it goes on uh, to the fact that, that Marty has now finished the screenplay. He actually wrote it all. It's sometime later. I can't remember the exact uh, time and space, but it's sometime later. And the movie is showing in the theaters. And... Marty comes out of and, and receives a call from Zachariah. This is Tom well, Waits. And if I'm not mistaken, this is like a post-credit scene, right? Like this is after the credits, I think. Yeah. So this is a little bit of that punch payoff at the right. end. He gets a phone call from Zachariah and he basically says, remember that pro-? because what's ended up happening is, is that Marty forgot to give that recognition and that message at the end of the film. And Tom Waits' character, Zachariah, basically says, you know, I'm not going to let you forget it. I'm going to come after you. I'll be there on Tuesday. I'll be there on Tuesday. Um, And that's the idea that he's telling him exactly when he's going to come kill him. Yeah. And what's funny is I find is like Marty kind of like reconciles it. He's like, yeah, okay. Okay. I'm not doing anything Tuesday. I I made the promise. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of that's kind of the end of the film, and and uh, just a whole bunch of, like we mentioned, a whole bunch of things going on, a lot of interesting characters, a lot of arcs. We jumped around a little bit in some of the chronological order of what the film is, but I think we we broke it down with some fun scenes and some fun character dynamics. Um, give me, Alan, kind of your your wrap up and your rating. Love this movie. Uh, I did get, and I, I don't want to harp on the negative, but it it definitely takes it down a little bit for me. Um, just there's a lot there's a lot going on, and I just I 
didn't feel like the story was quite, I don't want to say cohesive. It, it didn't have enough follow through. It didn't have enough drag the entire time. Like it, it kind of just puttered out a little bit and then got interesting again. So there's just like this section in the middle that just kind of left me wanting a little bit more. It's still very entertaining during that part, but it just feels like they just abandoned that story for a minute. And I also don't understand, like, all of a sudden they're in the desert. Like, there was no, there was no saying, let's go, we got to go hide. or You know, it was just, and I kind of liked that they didn't give that exposition. And they kind of explained it earlier on when they said, you know, the, de- the, the characters would just go out into the desert and talk. And so they kind of let you know what was happening. But it still was just like, all of a sudden they're in the desert. And then now this is where we're at now. Like we're not in Hollywood. Now we're officially just the movie has been changed locations and they didn't prepare you for this really. Not a big deal, but it still, you know, took me out a little bit. But overall, like I said, casting, great job. Uh, writing, phenomenal. Um, acting, phenomenal. Direction, phenomenal. Everything about this movie was great. Uh, I'm going to go 8.2 final shootouts. Nice. No final shootout. <laughs> no what? final shootout. <laughs> what? No. What? No. <laughs> no shootout. So angry about no it. Shootout. You just can't even so under- can't fathom that there's a movie about um, a shootout. <laughs> <laughs> which which is a play on I, I think it's a play on uh, some people's feelings about action films in general to the mass population, which is like if there's no shootout, there's no film. I agree. Um, yeah. Good. Good wrap up. Uh, just a couple quick things. IMDb comes in at 7.2. I thought it'd be higher. I did too. I thought it'd be higher. Uh, Rotten Tomato, uh, Rotten Tomatoes comes in at 82% on the critics and 71% on the audience. So it's there. I mean, it's fresh. I, I'm uh, interested. I, hmm. That's, that's interesting. I wonder why the audience doesn't like it as much. I mean, I, I can see the critic in this one. You know, we, we look at these a lot of times. The audience and the critics, as we know, never see eye to right. eye. And so, but I can see why the critics would come in higher here. I think it's because of the nod and the subtextual references to Hollywood and, and the dynamics of the meta approach to sure. how the story's told. I guess I'm just... I'm looking at it and I, I'm just like, what's not to like, like it's, it's got the best cast. It's got great writing, great direction. I just, I, I wonder what it is that's holding that score down more. Yeah. I mean, I think 71% is a little low. I would definitely say that. Feels um, like it. Yeah. I would, I would definitely go a little bit low. Um, a couple, just a couple quick pieces of trivia and then you can chime in if you, if you've got anything that you think you find interesting. Um, Tom Waits, we didn't talk enough about him. I, I think I, I was introduced to Tom Waits later. I don't know if you like his music. I, I, I do like his, some of his stuff. Um, but he's an animal lover. Apparently he agreed to the role without reading the script. Oh shit. <laughs> Upon hearing he would be surrounded by rabbits. <laughs> Something we neglected to, to mention, which was, his character is is surrounded by rabbits. And there's got to be some sort of symbolism that I'm missing about the white rabbit. Because he carries it yeah. around with him everywhere. So here we go back to this. I was saying, you know, one of the things that got me into Martin McDonough was his short film, Six Shooter, his first film. And it's all at the end of that film without giving it away, because I think people should go watch it. 
um, you can find it on, on YouTube or anywhere, is there's a rabbit. So I don't know if he has, it's kind of, not that it's a nod to his previous films, but he just has this kind of, I'm going to find a way to incorporate this thing into my movie. Kind of like John Woo, how he always has doves in his movies. Yeah. Yeah. But this is cooler than doves. Oh, way no cooler. Offense. Yeah. No offense. I actually like John Woo, but in it for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, to the to uh, the, the premiere of the film, Sam Rockwell and Colin Farrell wore matching shirts with a cartoon depiction of their co-star Christopher Walken on them. <laughs> you know what? That that makes me so happy because it feels like the relationship they had in the movie is real. Like yeah. it makes me think that it's real, and I want it to I, be real. You know, those guys are just buddies. Oh, they gotta be. I saw a little behind the scenes that I thought was funny and it was Colin Farrell and Sam Rockwell, both in the, in the ears, the side that this each, each on the side of uh, Tom Waits. And they're like, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite? <laughs> Sam's your favorite. Colin's your favorite. Sam's your favorite. And they just kept going back. You could tell they had a, a pretty good friendship. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, here, instead of a traditional red carpet at the premiere, Seven Psychopaths had a black carpet to match the mood of the film. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I just think that's kind of funny. This is the dumbest one, and then we'll wrap it up. But I think it's funny because it alludes to a scene we talked about with Billy setting the car on fire. He says, after Marty sees the car on fire and they run over, Billy uh, instructs him, get in the tent, Dumbo. <laughs> Later, Colin Farrell would star in the movie Dumbo. Oh, my God. <laughs> I told you it was dumb. I have but a good line, one. The line's funny. It is funny. I have a good one. It's not about the movie. It's about Christopher Walken. Apparently, go wrong there. he has never turned down a role. Ever. I think that's great. I, I do, too. Uh, but that, that does explain why he's been in some pretty bad movies. He's always the best part of those movies, though. It's it's like yeah, there's it's okay though. It's like it's it's, it's excusable. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I'm totally yeah. fine with it. Um, like what was that movie about the ping pong? It actually wasn't that bad, but Balls of Fury, I think, is what Balls it was of called. Fury. Yeah, yeah. It's, horrible movie, but I remember liking Walking. Yeah, he he made it good, like not good, but he made it uh, at least entertaining. Where because it, it's it is a terrible movie, so. I have a, a, a quick trivia, not a trivia, but multiple choice, two choices. Okay. Who has the bigger filmography without looking, Christopher Walken or Samuel L. Jackson? Ooh, wow. I mean, you just got done telling me that Chris Walken has never said never, no to a role. Never said no to a role. And he's older. So I'm going to say Walken. Nope. Jackson. I knew, I knew it'd be too easy. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, so Christopher Walken, 138 credits, which is a lot. That's a lot of movies. That's a ton. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson, 100, 189. Oh, he's pushing the 200. He's getting there. He'll, I mean, he'll be there. If he's I mean, old. if they're making movies next this year or next year, <laughs> but that's a big if, then he'll definitely. As as, yeah, as soon as they come out of the COVID yeah, shutdown, exactly. He's going he's to tack on another 10. Yeah. <laughs> And I guess these are these aren't all movies either. They're TV appearances too, but still, it's right. 
that's a, that's lot. a lot of that's, that's a lot of credits that's insane um well hopefully we see more of both of them because they're both on our list of yep. national treasures they are so they could make another 200 i'd be happy oh yeah they're they're, they're always the best part of anything they're in although Absolutely. i will say in this i think sam rockwell may have upstaged uh christopher walken yeah, I think I agree. I really do. Which and is, I love both of them, but Rockwell takes the cake. Yeah. Which is saying something because this might be off the top of my head, let me say, this is probably my favorite Christopher Walken performance. It's up there. Yeah. It's, it's good. Definitely up there. Very good. I know this sounds absolutely absurd, but I do love him in Batman Returns. Oh, he's fantastic. Fantastic. That, so that good. at the very end, like I don't know why this line sticks out to me, but it's just so Christopher Walken when he's like, Bruce Wayne, why are you dressed up like Batman? It's just <laughs> like it's so perfect. It's so perfect. Love that guy. He he's great. He's absolutely great. And so I agree with you on the casting. The casting's great. Also, it's one of the best cast films that I can think of. We've done almost 30 films now. And there's been a lot of great actors in each of those films, of course, as would be expected. But I think if you look at you look at the ensemble, the the setup of these, this is a huge, phenomenally talented cast. So even with even if you wrote a shitty movie, it might be interesting. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> now, with that said, I'll go back to my original my wrap up here, and then my original statement, which is Martin McDonough is. A uh, huge admiration for Martin McDonough as a screenwriter. Like I mentioned, even read some of his plays. There's just something about the way he creates characters, the way he creates dialogue, he, the way he pushes the story that to me is intriguing because it's different in his own unique way. I think this film for me um, is is definitely up there. I think the this i can see where the story becomes a little convoluted like you had mentioned but i think it's primarily because you could take the three or four micro stories that are in this bigger picture and go make a complete feature film around those stories so you yeah. have four or five stories Agreed. that in their own right could be a, their own film I, I mean like i said it doesn't take away from it it just it, it was just a little distracting i guess yeah no i get the convolution of it um, but with that said, uh, like I said, uh, huge Martin McDonough fan that now I came in in Bruges at a 10. It's the only thing I've ever rated perfect. You can go back and listen to episode two of the podcast and figure out why I won't go over all those things here again. For those listening, listen to episode two in Bruges. I really get into it. I love it. It's one of my favorite movies. This film, I also love although not in the same way that I love in Bruges. So I'm going to come in with a pretty high score still because this, I always, I always base it off a few things, but one of the primary things that I put into to my weighted score is can I watch this repeatedly over and over? Could I watch it more than once? Like I could go home right now and could I watch it? You know, there's there's films you you can't do that with for me. There's films I cannot do that with, but this is one of those films. So I'm going to come in at an eight 
8.9. Ooh. Yeah, just under 8.9 rabbits. Ooh, I like that too. I wish I would have thought of that one. <laughs> That's way better. 8.9. That's a high score. It's a good movie, Alan. It it's, really it's good. Is. So I what mean, I mean, I, I know we, we didn't uh I'm not gonna hold you to this, but what like off the top of your head, what would you give two uh three billboards? Yeah, so if I look at this, I gotta watch three billboards again. I've only seen it twice. Once in theaters and then once later. Right now I go in Bruges one. If I look at his three films, he's only done three feature films. So I go in Bruges, three billboards, seven psychopaths. Oh man. <laughs> so, so I don't know the score, but that's the order. So you know it's gotta be eight point above eight point nine. Wow. It's a good movie. Well, it's a very good movie. Powerful. Powerful movie. That's the thing. Like it's a different type of movie than what this is. This is fun and, and a dark comedy, as is in Bruges. Three Billboards is very powerful and moving in a different way. Man, how would that be? Like, you're a filmmaker. Your first movie, your first feature is in Bruges. And then you followed up working with Christopher Walken in Seven Psychopaths. And then you come out with Three Billboards. Like, it's I, the talent this guy has. He's got more talent in his 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 fingernail on his pinky than I have in my entire body than most people have in their entire body. His, his talent is, his, is, is unbelievable. His unique approach to writing is unbelievable. So yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Like what, what can you say wrong? Playwright, screenwriter, director, Martin McDonough, 2012 film, seven psychopaths. Go, go also watch six shooter. If you have not seen that, that's his first film. Uh, it's a short film, but it's great. Won the Academy Award for Best Short Narrative. And go check uh, TameAperture.com for more episodes. Also, reach out to us for future episodes, what we can review, and be part of our discussion. This is Alan and Gabe with the Tame Aperture Podcast signing out. Take care, y'all. I just realized she's not even in Hereditary. That's, that's Tony Collette. What the fuck was I thinking? Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.